following commentary does not necessarily reflect the views of the staff and management of WBCA or the Boston Neighborhood Network. If you would like to express another opinion, you can address your comments to Boston Neighborhood Network, 3025 Washington Street, Boston, Massachusetts, 02119. To arrange a time for your own commentary, you can call WBCA at 617-708-3215 or email radio at bnnmedia.org. Good evening and welcome to Talk of the Neighborhoods. I'm Joe Heisler, your host, coming to you from the BNN Live Studios in Eggleston Square. Tonight, also being simulcast on our sister radio station, WBCA 102.9 FM. Tonight, we have a terrific show in two parts. First up, we'll preview the upcoming presidential primary. That's right. Uh, you haven't heard too much about it because there's not a lot of competition, but uh, this coming Tuesday, March 5th, is the uh, one of the Super Tuesday states here in Massachusetts, and we'll talk with a couple of veteran Democratic uh, political uh, strategists, including of course, the uh, chairman of the Massachusetts Democratic Party, Steve Kerrigan, and uh, veteran Democratic campaign strategist, Steve Bilfer. Then in the second half, we'll shift gears. Uh, we'll talk about uh, news deserts. That's right, uh, the uh, loss of uh, many newspapers across the country and other media outlets. Joining me, uh, Northeastern University professor Dan Kennedy. He's uh, now also the author of a new book. It's called What Works in Community News. All that and more tonight on Talk of the Neighborhoods. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. We're back with Talk of the Neighborhoods. I'm Joe Heisler, your host, coming to, to you tonight from our BNN Live studios in Eggleston Square. And tonight we preview the upcoming March 5th Super Tuesday primary, presidential primary, here in Massachusetts. Uh, uh, not a lot of talk about it, but uh, it will have significance uh, as we go forward, uh, as we get closer to the general election, and of course, the uh, the final primary amount uh, results, and I'm very pleased to have joining me tonight uh, two experts, two political experts. Uh, uh, first up uh, on my far 
uh, right, your left, he is uh, Steve Kerrigan. He's the chairman of the Massachusetts Democratic Party. Steve, nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. And uh, his uh, longtime friend and colleague, uh, Steve Billifer, who's a veteran Democratic campaign strategist. And thank you both for coming in today. Great to be here. Thrilled to be here. Well, <laughs> <laughs> and enjoying himself. Well, what, what should we look for uh, in uh, Tuesday's uh, presidential primary? Uh, the, President Biden's only both opponents, yeah. I think that were on the ballot, uh, uh, have withdrawn, Marianne Williamson. She re-entered the race. Oh, she re-entered. Yes. <laughs> after, <coming, laughs> after getting 3% in Michigan yeah. the other day, huh? she unsuspended her campaign, uh, so she's uh, back uh, at wow. it. That's she's the only candidate I've known who got 3% and thought, you know what, <laughs> I should get back in. There's more to do. Uh, so yeah, so it, it's, um, it's an important day for a lot of reasons. Um, uh, first, it will take both parties a huge leap closer to what we already know what's going to happen, which is a yeah. general election matchup between President Biden and former President Trump. Uh, and so we, we will, the voters will be closer to that ultimate decision, um, which I think will, will, will cause Democrats and uh, maybe some Republicans, but I'm more concerned in this instance with Democrats, um, to sort of settle down and understand what choice really is before them. That it's no longer a choice between Joe Biden or not Joe Biden for the Democratic nomination, but it's it would it's between Joe Biden and Donald Trump and their visions for the future of this country and frankly um, the legacy that they've already left behind and which which vision do you agree with and so uh, I think after Tuesday um, we suspect President Biden will win here in Massachusetts <laughs> and everywhere else. Uh, I as the chair well, of the party, hey, I have and to, if he does, it might well, die. Yeah, <laughs> as chair of the party, I have to say uh, publicly that I am neutral in the Democratic <laughs> primary until after the, the, the voting is done, but. I suspect we'll be on our way to uh, cinching the nomination and then, then winning in November. Well, and Steve, jump in here because, of course, there's been a lot of uh, chatter, a lot of talk about, uh, of course, uh, President Biden. He, he just did get a clean bill of health from his doctors. Uh, he did. From his Robust, doctors, Stephen. But, Robust. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of uh, polling, outside polling, showing that uh, Democratic voters have a lot of doubts about him, primarily because of his age, I think. Uh, but also more recently, of course, uh, around Gaza and the uh, uh, Israeli uh, war there. And yeah, the interesting thing, Joe, about those polls is every time voters actually go to the polls, they, uh, at least on the Democratic side, vote for uh, the president in overwhelming numbers. Yeah. So, you know, I think we've seen that all the way up. We're gonna, I fully expect we're gonna see that in, in Massachusetts. There's, you know, there's, there's really no suspense on, on our side, um, I think, any suspense such that it is, is on the Republican side because Nikki Haley is, is not going away. She's gonna be here in the state yeah. um, this weekend trying to gin up interest. And she's, you know, it, it's being undercovered, I think, but she's being really hard on Trump well, uh, and good. hammering away at, yeah. at him. Good. I mean, she won 40%. No, she's the former governor of South Carolina. Right. Terribly unpopular there, apparently. Yeah. But she won 40% uh, in a race against Trump just last weekend. Um, this is, she's, she is, picking off a piece of the Republican base that he's not gonna necessarily get back. Um, and that is a story. And then, and then if you look at the independent numbers, both in New Hampshire and in South Carolina, uh, Trump is, is losing independence at a level that won't sustain him through mm -hmm. November. Uh, the other thing I'll say about polling, and, and Steve said it well, that um, all the polls said, by the way, in 2022, that there was gonna be a massive red wave. Uh, and there was a red wave if you only looked at voters 45 and over. Uh, once you added in 18 to 45, right. you saw the results. Uh, we, we won the Senate, we kept the Senate. Um, we, we made great strides in governor's races and, and um, state house races all across uh, the country. The Republicans did seize 
the majority, but by the slimmest of possible majorities mm -hmm. in, the House. Uh, in the House of Representatives. And so uh, if you just look at the polling number and not the underlying issues that people are concerned with, um, then I think you missed the mark. Well, and, and back to Haley, just for a, a minute, because uh, there is no, you know, no real drama there, I, I, right. I don't think. But uh, uh, what, what's in it for her to stay in that long? Uh, I, apparently, she has the money to do so, although I understand she's losing some money from, like, the Coke Network yeah, yeah. and some of these other and big funders. She, she said it herself. She, she described the, the Republican Party as fully divided, mm -hmm. and, and I think she's trying to put herself on the other side of that divide yeah. of, of whatever comes out of the Trump era in the Republican Party. Um, and that's fine if she wants to establish herself as, as a leader. I think, you know, when you talk about numbers in polls, Tuesday, not just here in Massachusetts, but in all the Super mm -hmm. Tuesday states, the fascinating number to look at is going to be the exit polls of those Haley voters. Because mm -hmm. they will ask them, will you vote for Donald Trump in November? Mm -hmm. Will you support him? And mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I think it's, you know, the, the, the number that we increasingly have to look at as this primary season goes on, there's not a lot of suspense in the outcome, but it's, you know, you should always be looking at, at, at who's turning out, what are they doing, are they, is this a protest vote, or is this a voters who are never mm -hmm. going to come home and never going to vote, you, who are going to basically take a Mitt Romney mm -hmm. position. Mm -hmm. No, 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 never. Right. Well, but, but back to uh, Biden just for a second, of course, sure. uh, in the Michigan primary, uh, th there was a not insubstantial number of, sure. of voters that uh, voted, uh, you know, uh, undecided, uncommitted, yeah. uncommitted mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it. Uh, whether it was as a protest voter, they really were uncommitted, it's not clear. But uh, certainly in news reports indicating that uh, uh, he could be losing, especially among uh, uh, young voters. Uh, and also uh, in, in Michigan, which is a, a, a you know, key matchup state, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Arab Americans, Muslims. Uh, uh, is that a concern going down the road? And the latest uh, NBC poll showed Trump winning sure. uh, uh, by a margin, increasing his margin, actually, I think, like by 5%, still within the margin of yeah. error. So I, I would say, of course, it, there's a concern when mm -hmm. you're not garnering uh, as many votes yeah. as you possibly can. Uh, I don't want to, um, I never presuppose why somebody voted a certain yep. way. Um, lots of folks have made clear why they voted uncommitted in Michigan and why some may do so in other states. Mm -hmm. um, but what you, you can, it's easier to do that in a primary where um, the leading candidate is facing really just token opposition. Uh, I firmly believe, and I've believed this throughout the course of the campaign, that the closer we get to that, um, uh, that binary choice of Biden versus Trump, um, despite your feelings on a particular issue or uh, a policy matter, um, folks will come to realize that having the leadership of Joe Biden, uh, as imperfect as, as it is, because we're mm -hmm. all imperfect, um, is far better than having a wannabe dictator, narcissist, autocrat um, in waiting uh, in Donald Trump. And so I, I do feel like people come home. There, there are folks who are dissatisfied with mm. the president's foreign policy or with a number of other policy yeah. initiatives of his, and they're going to make the decision they're going to make. But, Have you seen the president lately? Uh, uh, we saw him when he was here in town in December, yeah. In December. And any uh, sense that he's uh, no. uh, losing his edge, so to speak? No, he was uh, sharp as I mean, he's, yeah, no, he was sharp as he, I, I mean, I've known him for a number of years because I worked I, in the Senate and, uh, and then worked for he and President Obama, uh, and uh, he didn't miss a beat. And he's, uh, he is, he's ready for this campaign. Uh, he is, he understands what's at stake in this race. 
Um, you know, he doesn't believe that the presidency is a vanity exercise. Mm -hmm. He believes it's a, a solemn responsibility and an opportunity to make a difference in people's lives. Uh, and, and what I would just suggest to folks is, uh, do as the president suggests, which is always, don't compare him to the almighty, but compare him to the alternative. Yeah. Uh, and the alternative here is, um, uh, a person the likes of which we hope never to see again right. in the United States scary. against Donald Trump. It's uh, a very it, scary process. Which is raises an interesting point, and Steve, you can uh, jump in as well. Uh, what do you tell your uh, your friends that, uh, you know, like uh, people, uh, you know, uh, scared to death that Trump is going yeah. to get elected to another four-year term? And, yeah. you know, who knows what that brings with it. But what, what do you tell your friends? Uh, pack your bags? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> vote. Yeah, get, out, vote. get out and vote and bring five people with you. Right. right? Yeah. 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 I mean, if you're um, if you're concerned about the future, as we all should be for a variety of reasons, you know, get out and get active. And uh, this is a time when we may look back and say, "Is there more I could have done?" And yeah. and don't be fooled that just because we're in Massachusetts, your vote doesn't count. Or you can do so much more. You can um, support candidates in other areas of the country. Through MassDems.org, um, people can sign up to volunteer, to make phone calls, do text messaging, uh, emails to people that they know in swing districts all across the country. There's ways for people to be involved and sort of what I call exporting their activism all across the country because it's not just about the president's race or about Senator Warren's re-election. Uh, it's about making sure we maintain the majority in the Senate, win back the House, uh, win back some governorships, and make sure that we set our, our nation on a strong path for, for success in the future. Uh, are you uh, concerned about the uh, Democratic slate uh, coming up? And, uh, of course, they, uh, your party uh, controls all the congressional seats. We do, yeah. Both Senate seats. Uh, all well, the voters control those seats. They yeah, just so elect that, Democrats that, to, <laughs> to sit in them. <laughs> <laughs> the wise voters of Massachusetts. Uh, so, uh, am I concerned? Yeah. No. I, I, look, I think our delegation <clears throat> is well suited for re-election. They, they show uh, each and every day, I was just down in Washington with some health center folks a few weeks ago, each and every day how much they understand the issues that face the people of Massachusetts and the country and how much they're going to put their resources to work to fight for them. And so we, we are blessed in Massachusetts to have a fantastic mm -hmm. delegation of 11 people in Washington who are fighting for us, yeah. uh, 10 of whom are up for re-election, and we hope they all win. Now, and I want to talk some more about it, but i, I got to ask you about this, because sure. uh, uh, you know, talking about uh, the president's age and uh, a lot of people saying, you know, Democrats, they don't have a farm team. You know, they don't... Uh, what would happen if, if something... Uh, uh, did happen to uh, President Biden, and a lot of ifs there, of course. But uh, is there, in your mind, uh, uh, has his decision to run for re-election kind of put off uh, building a, a farm team that no. in the future? Can, no, uh, not even a little bit. No, I mean, look, we've got a, a, a troop of fantastic governors across the country. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer was just here was the other just day. Here, right. uh, yeah. Maura Healy, by the way, is a fantastic yeah. Yeah. Uh, governor. Uh, uh, Wes Moore in Maryland, Josh Stein, we've got fantastic, uh, Gavin Newsom, uh, we've got some fantastic members of the cabinet and Pete Buttigieg, uh, who has already run for president, mm -hmm. um, and I suspect we'll probably do it again at yeah, some point. Uh, but we've got a fantastic group of folks uh, who understand uh, more than anyone, probably, that um, re-electing Joe Biden is the most important thing that we need to be doing for the future of our country. They understand that in order to advance any of um, the issues that they care about, we have to win the White House uh, again. And uh, and so they, they I, I don't want to speak for any of them, but um, I know a number of them, and they're glad uh, to support him and fight hard mm -hmm. for him uh, because they understand that he is who we need right mm -hmm. now to defeat Donald Trump 
and lead our country, and that there's going to be an election every four years. So Surprised nobody time. jumped in there, though, to challenge him? Uh, it's a sign that Joe Biden's doing a good job. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, that is a, you know, having covered some elections in the past, and when I started my career, was covering the 92 election, and, you know, there was a protest, a candidate against uh, right. George Bush, Pat Buchanan, and, and you know, Dean Phillips is no Pat Buchanan. Right. I mean, this is not <laughs> right. a protest. We're talking about candidate. that congressman from Minnesota. He, yeah. And he has withdrawn. As I, he is also still in now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, he has. Wow. Well, he got 2% of his I mean, <laughs> You know, for all this media talk and, and pundit talk and, and annual hand wringing or yep. quadrennial hand wringing about, um, you know, the, you haven't seen that protest right. candidate. And, you know, teens, 13, 14, 15% of uncommitted in Michigan is not someone going into New Hampshire and mm. pulling off an upset or, right. or so you know you you haven't seen that I think what you're seeing is is you know people voters in the Democratic side coming out for the president in the 80s 90s percent and uh, you know they're ready to get behind Joe Biden in the fall to your the question about the farm team I thought it was fascinating because I saw an interview on CNN and all the governors they must have been the National Governors Association right. but they had all a uh, group of, of, of women governors on it must have been eight or yeah, it's nine. Eight, yeah. And it was a, uh, a fantastic picture for the Democratic Party and for America to see. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, is, is there no presidential primary this year? That's not always how, the only yeah. way to build a farm team. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You have people who are in jobs making key decisions, uh, you know, leading in, in very serious ways mm -hmm. all across the country. Are you concerned about uh, third-party candidates, RFK, uh, maybe uh, the Libertarian candidate, who knows, but uh, uh, certainly, uh, and talk of uh, other third-party candidates, of course. Uh, I mean, again, look, you, if you run for office, you want all the votes you can get. Yeah. Um, if you're voting for Robert Kennedy Jr., who I've known for 30-plus years, if you're voting for him, uh, you're not voting for Joe Biden no matter what. Uh, I'd like yeah, to. So, so he's not getting those. I votes. don't think so. I yeah. think he's. I think he's probably pulling some Democrats, but they're um, probably disillusioned Democrats, same as he's pulling some Republicans. I mean, he's got a very specific. Um, I'm an anti-vaxxer, but I'm not an anti-vaxxer. Um, so I'm an he, environmentalist, right, but exactly. I'm not. Yeah, <laughs> hey, he's got this very specific um, group of folks he's approaching. Um, as long as we have the electoral college. Um, uh, I don't suspect they'll be stealing. It's not Ross Perot uh, in 92 or 96, but they were actually taking it so that um, it, it really impacted uh, the election in a significant way. Um, I mean, remember, Bill Clinton won both his elections with under 46% right. or something. And, um, but also remember Hillary Clinton lost oh, I know. some of those states by... Yeah. Uh, the number of votes that... Uh, 10,000 votes. Right, yeah. that the Green mm -hmm. Party got. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think there'll be plenty of talk and reminding yeah. about whether it's Jill Stein or Ralph Nader right. or, or examples in the past of... Jill Stein's running again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm talking Ralph about her, her but, yeah. 2016 yeah, version. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You're trying to bring him into the... Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> update me on the latest headlines. Who's in, who's out? Right. Um, well, I, I don't know either. So. Yeah. <laughs> Wait till 801 on Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to think. But I, the, you know, the story of this election is going to be the stakes of the election. Yeah. And, and, you know, the... Um, the stakes are, are higher than they've ever been yeah. in terms of the future of our democracy, and so this is not a year to throw away your vote on, no. on a protest or a, uh, or, or a you know these these fringe candidates. And, and that urgency will uh, increase as we get closer and closer. Yeah, as, I, as I've, I've been saying this for months, that I, I do feel like most voters in America um, 
are Donald Trump and Joe Biden their ideal candidates? Probably yeah. not. Um, but, and polling would suggest that, but as they get closer to that binary choice, which I think Tuesday is a big step toward that. Mm -hmm. I know President Biden will just be a couple of hundred um, uh, delegates away from securing the nomination. And if you throw in the DNC members, he's probably already there. President Trump will be pretty close. Um, it's no longer a theoretical conversation mm -hmm. about uh, can we replace this person with that person. Uh, it's those two men. And we have to decide as a nation yeah. what we want the story of this election to show, not just to us and our kids, but to the rest of the world. Uh, and I do think, uh, and I encourage folks to really give a lot of thought to um, to the choice they have to make in November. This is one of the longest general elections that we're oh, going to have, wow. uh, it, which on. gives people an awful yeah. long time to really um, uh, uh, understand what's yeah. at stake. And I think Steve's right that that's the big, the big story. And possibly fit some uh, trials in between. Um, <laughs> uh, again, talking with uh, Steve Kerrigan, the uh, uh, chairman of the Massachusetts Democratic Party, and uh, uh, Steve Billifer, a, a veteran Democratic campaign strategist. We've got just a few minutes left. Yeah, isn't it? Uh, the tendency, of course, is if, uh, if you know you're a Democrat or you're leaning that way, uh, you vote for anybody but uh, but Donald Trump. Uh, and, and so I'm guessing, you know, uh, for those that uh, uh, you know, like I said, there's not really much of a Democratic primary. But if you wanted to uh, cast a protest vote against Donald Trump to to vote in the Republican primary and vote for uh, Nikki Haley. And, and of course, the, uh, you know, you, if, if you're in that situation, let's say, uh, you know, you, you, you probably do that. But on the other hand, the polls show that Nikki Haley would easily beat Biden. One and, poll showed that uh, in September. Uh, <laughs> which, which, which she's been hanging on to. Which she's been on to. Like so we shouldn't should read too September. much into no, that. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And polls, I mean, are, polls are also, the, you know, everything changes when, when things become right, real. Right. And I don't think anyone has really looked at Nikki Haley as right. a, uh, you know, a as, a, as, a, as a serious option right. or right. as the potential uh, option. Yeah. And so right now, you know, the, those answers go through different filters that it, it, it you can't treat that as a as a clear. That's what I'm saying. Smash. People give an answer. A lot of Democrats in 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 September were were probably saying they would like somebody different than Joe Biden. As we get closer to this general election, uh, people yeah. are going to come home to the choice that we have before but, us. But let me ask you about that. As yeah. as optimistic as you both are, we are, and you you have to be to uh, uh, to be in in politics these days. You, you got to be a little concerned about these poll numbers and and Biden's uh, favorabilities. Uh, you know, depending upon which ones you look at, you know, 30, he's in the 30s, you know, and uh, I think, uh, you know, really not many presidents in the modern era have been elected with uh, numbers that low. George, George H.W., to go back again to the 1992 race, had, I think, a 90% approval rating a year before the election. 90% um, or 91% yeah. and lost to Bill Clinton. So there's a lot that changes over time. Um, uh, I, I'm gonna, so you, but has there, been, has there been a campaign, presidential campaign, in the last... Uh, Century, or, or yeah, at least in the <laughs> any two thousands, right? Where where it's not nip and tuck, and we're not talking about right. a few thousand, hundred thousand voters way, in, in, in swings in six or eight swing states. Yeah. So I, I, you know, there's no reason why anybody, and there, believe me, there's not one bit of complacency that I've heard on on our side yeah. uh, going into this because that's what you expect these days. It's going to be say, nip and tuck. And I would say that the the electorate 
is as informed about these two candidates as they've ever been informed right. because you've got two people who will have done a full term as president to compare right. their, um, their, it's not, no one's learning yeah. more uh, unless it's through reading an indictment uh, about any one of these candidates um, that they already don't know, right. which means um, this race is going to stay tight, but in the end, right. the people are going to come. And let me uh, talk to you about this, so uh, ask you about this, I should say. Uh, and in the context of uh, certainly uh, uh, Governor Healy, and you, you mentioned her earlier, a rising star certainly in the party, yeah. but uh, uh, seems to have hit kind of a rough patch. And part of it uh, due to you know the influx of uh, refugees coming into the state and the ability or inability of the state to you know to fully uh, serve them and and sure. help them, uh, and you know pleading and asking for. Joe Biden and the federal government to pitch in, and of course uh, there was an attempt to pass the package. But the bottom line is uh, there, there does seem to, whether it's Trump or whomever, seem to have had some mileage using that issue against the president. Well, sure, yeah. yeah. I, first of all, yeah. I don't accept the premise that uh, she's not doing well yeah. on issues. She is showing incredible leadership. Yeah. Uh, from you're, you're not concerned. Well, no, she, from, she got no, elected with virtually. But, but from early on in the crisis, she was the first governor in the country saying to the White House, "We need to. If you're going to send migrant families to us, we need you to expedite work access. We need resources for shelters for like." She understood very clearly some of the issues that and the challenges that the state of Massachusetts yeah. face and the states around the country, and she went after them. The folks who should be ashamed of themselves are the Republicans in the House and Donald Trump, who there was a deal made between Joe Biden and Republicans and Democrats yeah. in the Senate to finally tackle border security after decades of ignoring it. And Donald Trump said, no, don't pass that because it's a better campaign issue. So I'm, I, I, I push back on the, the assertion that, uh, that it's a tough time for um, leaders like Moore Healy. It is, but she has been fighting hard alongside Joe Biden, alongside Democrats and Republicans in the Senate uh, to get reasonable border security funding, and Republicans are playing politics with it. And I think in the end, uh, and we'll see how today plays out since they're both down at the border, Biden and Trump, in the end, the voters are going to realize that they want results. And Joe Biden has delivered on results um, and is trying to deliver on results for the border. Uh, and you compare his record over four years with Donald Trump's record over four years, and Joe Biden should win the election every day of the week. Well, you remember. And last uh, but not least, i got to ask you, talking about, uh, and Steve, uh, uh, you, you're a suburban guy, and so you can, you saw the results of the, uh, uh, you're exurban, I think. Uh, <laughs> Very rural. You might be right. Um, uh, the uh, results of the election in uh, Milton for uh, accepting or rejecting the uh, uh, MBTA zoning law. Yeah. And does that kind of thing hurt uh, more Healy at the end? Uh, and of course, the attorney general is now uh, threatening to sue Milton as well. Yeah, I, you know, I don't think so. It's 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 within you know the principles that she's established. Yeah. And, and look at that was a town she she won by thirty percent or whether more. Whether it's the migrants, whether it's a housing crisis, uh, she's shown an incredible ability and. Uh, to step up and take on tough, right. tough issues, which I think so. no. people no. recognize. Yeah. And, uh, you know, no matter where your views are on immigration or housing or local zoning issues, I mean, we have a housing crunch. We have a housing issue crisis Huge. in this, you know, in greater Boston. And, um, you know, you have to step up and address the supply issue, and that's what she's trying to do. And, and so yeah. if it means dragging a few communities yeah. over the line, um, you know, she's going to stick yeah. to her yeah. guns. And yeah. I think people will give her credit for that. Yeah. 
She's working to solve the problems. You're both hopeful. Uh, you know, it's been a, Every day. a rough uh, stretch here. You know, a lot of uh, de divisiveness and some yeah. say bitterness. And well, uh, January 6th is a you know perfect example. But uh, so as I go across the Commonwealth, I. Uh, I am more and more uh, hopeful every day because people are engaged in government at a level that they weren't before, engaged in politics. They, they may not agree all the time with, mm -hmm. with me on every issue or the governor or the president, um, but people are engaged, and that's what we need. We need people who are coming to um, the issues that we face as a, as a society uh, with an open heart mm -hmm. and an open mind uh, and a willingness to pitch in and, and help make a difference. And when people are willing to do that, uh, then I'm optimistic. I, I really hope... Um, that things change in Washington and the tenor of our politics change. It wasn't like that when I worked there years ago, uh, and I have, a, I have a, a sneaky suspicion that we elect the right people down there, well, and we can turn things around. Very interesting, yeah. yeah. Uh, Steve Kerrigan, uh, chairman of the Massachusetts Democratic Party, is a uh, uh, former colleague and uh, friend, Steve Billifer, a Democratic Always campaign strategist. Yeah. <laughs> and who said friend? <laughs> Be careful Joe, what you're saying. Joe, after this, we're launching the podcast. <laughs> Thank you both for coming. Thanks, for having Thanks having Appreciate it. And when we come back with more of Talking the Neighborhoods, well, we'll, we'll shift gears and talk about, uh, about news deserts. Uh, that's right, the uh, loss of many uh, respectable uh, newspapers and news outlets over the past few years, due in large part to uh, the influence of social media. Talk to Dan Kennedy, a Northeastern University professor, and now the author of a new book about what does work in community news and uh, uh, what's the future of the fourth estate. All that and more when we come back with more of Talk to the Neighborhoods. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. On Friday, Boston Public Library Career Services presented the multi-industry job fair at Roxbury's Bowling Building, a collaboration with the City of Boston, Mass Hire Boston, and Youth Build Boston. It's important to hold job fairs uh, because Employers are searching for people, um, particularly post-COVID, and it's nice to bring talent uh, together with people seeking talent. Um, we focus on construction for Boston residents, women and people of color, um, but we have opened it up to multiple employers. Uh, five of the uh, 25 or so unions uh, are here today, uh, along with the post office, power core, um, and about 30 other uh, either training programs or employment services. Well, it's a pretty incredible opportunity to have so many different uh, positions available within just one room. Um, it's pretty user-friendly and uh, it's allowed me to just get information about a dozen different positions over the course of 15 minutes. City residents, women, and people of color were encouraged to attend and create connections with organizations offering job and career training in the green industry, construction, transportation, higher education fields, and more. This is a great place for you to come out and for you to look and in the community to get help and the resources that you wouldn't normally have access to, to be able to see the people that you would possibly be working for, to be able to ask the questions that you need to ask. This is a great opportunity to be able to, to come down and actually meet the people, opposed to being on a computer, as opposed to being like in a network center. It's always good to meet the actual employers so you can be able to ask the questions and get the actual responsibility of which it is that you want to do. Career services were available from Harvard University, Franklin Cummings Tech, United States Postal Service, and more, as well as apprenticeship programs in engineering. 
This is an awesome opportunity for job seekers in Boston. We're in the heart of Roxbury. There's over 30 different companies and unions here. Uh, plenty of opportunities for diversity and inclusion. Um, we have different translators here also to help people who have different language barriers. Um, this is a good opportunity for those looking for uh, opportunities in the trades as well as other industries. Working at the city of Boston and knowing how many people want access to these resources, making sure they're all consolidated under one roof is integral and also you know, most people want to make sure that they can be in the job space, so making sure that we can connect them to the jobs that they actually want and feel fulfilled in is huge and, and, and really important community work. The Massachusetts Executive Office of Labor and Workforce Development reported 3.2% unemployment rate in the city of Boston, which sits lower than the national average of 3.7%. With efforts like Boston Public Library's Industry Job Fair, work opportunities are becoming more accessible. Reparations are not new. Reparations are due. On Saturday, Boston People's Reparations Commission, BPRC, in partnership with New Democracy Coalition, listed their demands for reparations to the city, which included $15 billion for the black community. The press conference marked the first time the grassroots organization specified a cash payout amount. We're uh, mindful that a $15 billion ask is an enormous ask, but it's not enough. So this is the initial ask, and we need to figure out uh, how over generations the reparations, the remuneration uh, process in the city of Boston continues. It's just not about this generation. It's about the generations are coming. We're pleased to have a four-year-older in our audience during this meeting. Reparations should be about her, too. Members of Boston City Council, including Councilors Tanya Anderson and Council President Rupsi Louisjeune, stayed for the community meeting at BPRC's new permanent home at Dudley Cafe. This commission, the People's Commission, uh, Reparations Commission, um, is promising and hopefully will um, incentivize the administration to allow them to partner with the Reparations Task Force. I've always said that um, there needs to be a community component, community voice, it should be community led. Um, they are the closest to the pain and the power, as our Congresswoman says. Um, and so this level of you know, uh, concern for transparency and inclusion is fair, um, and hopefully our, the administration will comply. This is our money. That's right. BNN Live Studios in Eggleston Square. Also tonight being simulcast on our sister radio station, WBCA 102.9 FM. And in this uh, segment, I'm very pleased to have joining me uh, a uh, longtime Boston journalist, uh, uh, former colleague at the Boston Phoenix, although he had much more experience than I ever had there. Uh, now, a, of course, a, a professor a noted professor of journalism at Northeastern University. He is also a uh, national media commentator uh, on Media Nation, his uh, blog, his website, I think that's uh, how you refer to it, and now most recently his latest book on uh, the future of uh, news, community news in particular, and uh, his book is uh, What Works in Community News, Media Startups, uh, 
News Deserts and the Future of the Fourth Estate. Dan Kennedy joins us. Thank you, Joe. Nice to have you here. Thanks Good so much. Good to see you. It's been a while. Good to see you. So nice of you to join me. Well, the news business has changed an awful lot from back in those years. Uh, you were, of course, uh, the uh, uh, media critic uh, coverage for the uh, Boston Phoenix. Uh, must read. I read it uh, you know, faithfully for years and years. Uh, what has happened uh, to the news business? Uh, I mean, even even the venerable Boston Globe, which was once the 800-pound gorilla in the uh, Boston news uh, room, has, is not what it once was. So where did this uh, degradation of the news business start? Well, the Globe, I guess, today is the 500-pound gorilla <laughs> because they're doing pretty well. Yeah. Uh, they really are. Um, well, what... Alan Clegg, my co-author, and I looked at is... Former Globe editor. For, former editor at the Globe. Um, what we looked at was we looked at the rise of independent local news to try to fill the gap created by the collapse of legacy local newspapers. And you asked what went wrong. We really look at three things. First of all, um, Craigslist came along and wiped out all the classified yeah, ads. Yeah. And, and those paid for an awful lot of journalism at these papers. Uh, a lot of people didn't realize that. A lot know? of people didn't re I mean, you mentioned that I worked at the Phoenix. Right? We lived off of classified right, ads. Yeah. It was like, we need, we need a bass player. I need a roommate. I want a girlfriend. <laughs> and, and all of that went to Craigslist. Right. Um, the other thing that happened was that Google and Facebook came along and took most of the rest of the advertising. But what Ellen and I really believe is that a lot of the local newspapers could have survived that, and they were still earning some revenues, and they could have used that to invest in uh, what they were doing, try to find new ways of covering things, new technological solutions. But they were all ended up getting acquired by corporate chains and hedge funds. And those new owners took the money that they were making and shipped it out of town to uh, pay down debt to enrich their owners. And, uh, and that's really what led to the collapse of local news, not just in Massachusetts, but across the country. Uh, how was it uh, in Massachusetts versus though, uh, the rest of the country? I mean, of course, uh, uh, you know, we still have the Globe, we still have the Herald. And certainly in the city of Boston, we still have some very active weeklies. I think yes. the Dorchester Reporter, Banner, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Bay State Banner yeah. under new ownership. Right. They're, right. they're positioned right. to do very but, well. But how, how did it affect uh, Massachusetts? Uh, what, what did we lose? What's the extent of the crisis? Help people understand sure. what, what took place. Well, you mentioned some success stories, right. but you get out into the suburbs, and what happened was, over the last few years in particular, uh, Gannett and its predecessor company, Gatehouse Media, had been shrinking all of their weekly papers, making them smaller and smaller mm -hmm. and smaller. And then finally, a couple of years ago, uh, Gannett just kind of took these papers and closed a bunch of them, merged a bunch of them. We're talking about a couple of dozen papers uh, in, in the suburbs. And um, even the ones that were left, they removed the local news and replaced it with regional news from around the chain. Right. You're talking so, like uh, 
Patriot Ledger, uh, Brockton Enterprise. Well, those would be the dailies. But yeah, yes, right. it happened yeah. to that, too. Yeah. It, it happened to those papers as well. So while we still have the Globe and the Herald doing regional news, and the TV stations do a right. pretty good job, yeah, exactly. there's nobody out in the suburbs covering the planning board, zoning mm -hmm. issues, school committee, things like that. And so we have seen quite a response in eastern Massachusetts by communities that have started uh, mostly nonprofit mm -hmm. news projects of their own. Unfortunately, they tend to be concentrated in the more affluent areas, and it's a harder thing to do in urban communities of color. And as Ellen and I have looked at this problem nationally, it's also hard to do in rural areas. Uh, but so those are the news deserts. Those are the news deserts, absolutely. And it's not just here, though. This is going on across the country. Oh, yeah. And, oh, absolutely. And in some places, even worse than Massachusetts. In many places, worse than Massachusetts. Uh, you get out into the rural heartland, and that may be the hardest nut to crack that there is. One of the projects that Ellen reported on is the Storm Lake Times they added a name, but oh, the Storm Lake Times pilot in uh, Storm in, Lake rural, Iowa, right? in in rural Iowa, <clears throat> and it's a it's a it's a good paper. They won a Pulitzer Prize a few years ago for their editorial writing, uh, but they have had such a difficult time with their business model that the editor and his brother, the publisher, are not taking a salary. They're subsisting on Social Security at this point. Um, so that's really difficult. In some of the other areas that we looked at, um, the new projects that have been founded are growing and bringing in enough money to pay a decent wage. But, but that's the disparity between the more affluent mm -hmm. urban and suburban areas versus the rural areas. Besides the loss of jobs and, of course, a lot of uh, uh, journalists you know, out of work as a result of it, What's the what's the real risk here of uh, you know that loss of local news? Uh, you know because I, of course you know coming out of the pandemic when nothing is the same anymore or it seems like it. Uh, uh, but uh, is there a greater risk at at hand here? You talk about the pandemic. I was actually out in Mendocino County, California, reporting for the book on the Mendocino Voice, which is a interesting little mm -hmm. um, uh, hyperlocal website. And I was there in the first week of March 2020. Wow. I didn't think I was going to get home. And we had to shut down the uh, book for a year before we started working, working on, on it the again. Book, yeah. yeah. So uh, when you talk about um, what's lost, a lot of things are lost. But studies show fewer people run for office. Um, voter turnout drops. Uh, one of my favorite findings is that there's something that Alan and I call a corruption tax, and that is if a community, if town officials, city officials, want to borrow money to build a new fire station, a new middle school, or whatever, they end up having to pay a higher rate of interest if there's no reliable source of local news in town. And what's happened is that the people who are lending the money uh, know that there's nobody keeping an eye on how it's being spent. So they ask for a, um, a premium. But we think that the most serious uh, problem that occurs is that 
people want news, and they just gravitate mm. toward national and international news. And they especially gravitate toward polarizing cable news talk shows. That. And so what happens is this feeds into the partisan polarization. Right. You can't trust anybody. You can't You're trust anybody. And it's why people show up at school committee meetings right. and instead of saying, what can we do to improve math scores or, or, or real education mm -hmm. issues, they're talking about critical race theory and um, book banning and things like mm -hmm. that because they're getting it from national cable news. Well, um, <laughs> And not to name names, yeah. but Fox yes. News, yes. that's what uh, we're yes. talking oh, about. Yeah. Uh, and, and now there's some uh, you know, even more extreme uh, yes. news outlets out there uh, for those. And you know, it's interesting, uh, not to digress, but uh, lots of times I can tell what news stations people are listening to by virtue of the fact of what they say, you oh, know? Yeah. and it might be something just not normally critical race theory, but uh, you know other other things, really commonplace things, and you go, well, but that's not true, yep, you know. Exactly. Uh, you know for a fact it's not true, but it, it doesn't matter, of course, because uh, people have this in their mind. Well, you know, and what a timely uh, a book you've you've written, Dan. Congratulations Thank on that. You. I should have said that at the top, uh, only because. Uh, to give people an understanding of what is working, what what kinds of projects did you find? You mentioned the uh, the uh, voice in where was it Mendocino? The Mendocino oh, voice. voice. Yeah. That's probably one of the two smallest that we looked yeah. at. Let me tell you about one that I think is really interesting yeah. because they keep adjusting their business model mm. to keep up with the challenges that they're facing. The Colorado Sun in Denver, Colorado, started, I think it was about five years ago now, by 10 top people at the Denver Post right. who had just had enough. The Alden Global Capital, the hedge fund that owned them, had cut them over and over right. and over. So they said, we're going to start our own project, uh, digital only. Um, and they've tried a number of different things. Early on, they were going to be financed by crypto somehow. Don't ask me to explain it because <laughs> I asked the editor to explain it to me and either he couldn't explain it or I was too dense to understand what he was saying. Well, I I'm, I'm that, not sure but, uh, which. Yeah. I, it's hard to follow, I, I think that's fair to say. Well, that didn't work out, although they did get some startup money out of it. Mm -hmm. so, so it wasn't a complete failure. Then they moved on and became a for-profit public benefit corporation. And what that means is, it doesn't mean a whole lot, but what it means is that you are not legally obligated to use your revenues to enrich the owners. You can reinvest it back in the news. And at the same time, they, they started working with a nonprofit organization so that people could make, and people in foundations could make donations to the nonprofit to support certain types of public interest reporting that the Colorado mm -hmm. Sun was doing, even though the Sun was a for-profit. This has become a model we've seen other places, right. by the way. Locally, the Provincetown Independent does that. So they did that for a while. At one time, they were brought in as a co-owner of a chain of weekly and monthly newspapers in the suburbs that had been acquired by another nonprofit. Uh, and then finally, last fall, after the book, unfortunately, we couldn't get right. this into the book, 
uh, they said, you know what, we're going to go fully nonprofit. Uh, trying to explain to people that we're a for-profit, but you should give to the nonprofit, yeah. it was just getting to be too, too complicated. Yeah. So we'll become a nonprofit. They're unwinding their relationship with the uh, suburban papers. But what I love about it is they're very fast on their feet. They see where the opportunity is. They see what direction things are going in, and they go there. They're up to about a couple of dozen journalists, which makes them one of the largest yeah. in the state. And they pay a living wage. Right. They absolutely are dedicated Even to that. Better. Uh, you know, what, uh, in terms of saving some of these uh, newspapers, and, and again, part of it, they were just gutted by, you know, uh, hedge fund owners and that kind of thing. But uh, you mentioned a couple of things, and, and uh, how big a part I keep thinking, I, I know I've seen some places, uh, GoFundMe pages, but philanthropists uh, uh, helping pitch in. How, how, important of a role have they played? And do you see the future, though, of the news business kind of in the nonprofit sector? The Globe is, of course, prop for profit, so is the Herald, but uh, uh, we're talking about you know smaller papers here, smaller news outlets. The, the Globe is a for profit, and they're profitable and growing, right. but yet at the same time. There was a question for a while. Well, yes, it was. Yeah. Well, there was a time when yeah. even the New York Times was thought to be about to go out of business, and, right. and now they're, they're, they are the 800-pound gorilla. Um, but even the Globe has certain programs where there are nonprofits that support some of their right. reporting. Right. Uh, you know, what Ellen and I found is that nonprofit does seem to be the most reliable way to generate the revenue that you need to operate a news project at this point. Uh, that's good and bad. Frankly, we think it's important that new for-profit models of journalism Why? be developed. I think you need a diversity. Uh -huh. Not everything can be supported by foundations and membership donations right. and readers like you. Um, <laughs> it's a great model, but we think that there needs to be more than one model. Um, we're seeing national philanthropic efforts at the moment. There's a big effort by uh, over 20 major foundations called Press Forward that's going to be putting $500 million into local news over the next five years. By the way, that sounds like a lot of money. It's kind of a drop in the mm -hmm. bucket. What we really believe is that this money has got to come at the local level. And nonprofit news organizations need to educate the philanthropic community in their own place mm -hmm. that News is as important to support as youth programs, arts and culture, and the kinds of things that philanthropies traditionally support. I, I saw a piece recently that you wrote for Media Nation, which uh, where uh, you know, one of the smaller news outlets was critical of foundations because the money was being channeled to larger news yes. organizations and uh, instead of to these smaller outlets, which you know, in some cases are, are critical to neighborhoods and we things. are starting to see some criticism of what people refer to as big philanthropy mm -hmm. and uh, and I, I hope that they're listening because a lot of these really tiny projects are every bit as important as the large projects like you know the Texas Tribune for instance right. or, uh, or or some of the other big ones you, they, they need support the Baltimore banner would be another right. example and what about uh, role of government 
because I know you've uh, written about that as well. And, yeah, and talked I mean, about it. I don't know if it, it's covered in your book. I didn't see that part A little of it. bit, yeah. a little bit. We didn't get into it in any great detail yeah. because we were more interested in focusing right. on the success stories. But Maybe um, a bit more controversial because, you know, uh, it, but, it, but on the other hand, some people would say it, it's a, 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 you know, a, much needed use of public funds. Well, it can, it can compromise the independence right. of a news organization yep. once government money gets involved. There have been ideas for tax credits for subscribers, mm -hmm. for local advertisers, for publishers in order to hire and retain reporters. That seems to be protected enough from interference that it might be worth give, giving a try. Uh, in California and New Jersey, uh, and we did write about the New Jersey uh, experiment. Um, there's tax money that's been set aside mm -hmm. to support local journalism. And of course it raises questions about independence, but it's also supporting some uh, important public, uh, an, an important public mm -hmm. good as well. Well, Dan, you, you might be one of the uh, most clear-eyed journalists I've, I've ever known, and uh, I appreciate all the work you do. Look into your crystal ball now, and, and uh, uh, what is it? What does the news business look like five, ten years down the road, uh, uh, especially after all the changes that we're going through? Well, I mean, since we're talking about local news, I'll, I'll talk about sure. what I, where yeah. I think local news is going. Um, there's going to be continued difficult times ahead. There's no question about it. So many local newspapers and. We don't have to be talking about newspapers, but generally speaking, yeah. that's what we're talking right. about, are, are still held by these corporate chains that keep squeezing the life out of them. And I think they're going to continue to shrink them and uh, close them. But at the same time, uh, I've been following this space for 15 years now. And for a long time, you'd see a few of these projects here and there start up and do well. The last few years, it's been like, you know, the hockey stick graph. It's just <laughs> exploded. Yeah. And uh, there are hundreds of these projects now. We could have written about any, any one of them. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and we think that that growth is going to continue. Uh, we hope that at some point it would be great if every community had mm -hmm. its own independent local news Of course, there's always a question about the quality because... Uh, Nowadays, you know, they say everybody with a, a cell phone is a, uh, a cameraman, is a journalist, but not everybody's a journalist. Well, you know, you and I go yeah, back yeah. long enough yeah. that we know that, uh, that the papers that were around back in the day, not all of them were so great either. Yeah, no. <laughs> but, but they were there, and they were local, and right. they were dedicated to their right. community, and I think that's what we need. Yeah, we need more of that. Uh, Dan Kennedy, uh, his book is uh, What Works in Community News, and... Uh, uh, must reading if you're uh, uh, interested in the business itself and uh, all the things that have gone on and what the future is. Uh, Tim, thanks so much for doing the book. Thank you, Joe. And uh, coming by and talking about it. Uh, you've been watching Talk to the Neighborhood here on the Boston Neighborhood Network. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks uh, from tonight with a preview of the annual Patty's Day Breakfast. Joining us, uh, Senator Nick Collins is scheduled to be here. Uh, we hope you'll join us in. Until then, for the entire staff and crew here at BNN, I'm Joe Heisler. Thank you for watching Talk to the Neighbors. Have a pleasant evening. Good night.
The preceding commentary does not necessarily reflect the views of the staff and management of WBCA or the Boston Neighborhood Network. If you would like to express another opinion, you can address your comments to Boston Neighborhood Network, 3025 Washington Street, Boston, Massachusetts, 02119. To arrange a time for your own commentary, you can call WBCA at 617-708-3215 or email radio at bnnmedia.org.